a reading from the Acts of the Apostles. As I was traveling and approaching Damascus about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? I answered, Who are you? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I said, What should I do? The Lord told me, Get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything that you have been assigned to do. Since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and went into Damascus. Someone named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, who had a good reputation with all the Jews living there, came and stood by me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And in that very hour, I looked up and saw him. And he said, The God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the words from his mouth, since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you delaying? Get up! and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. After I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him telling me, Hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about it. And I said, Lord, they know that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. He said to me, Go, because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. And hello, good to see you. If I haven't met you, my name is Father Aaron Damiani. And we are in a series called God of the Impossible. We're looking at all of the different acts of God in history, or many of the different acts of God in history, that uh, really raised people's awareness uh, that God exists, and that he's powerful, and that he's good, and that he's worthy of following. Um, and so we're in Acts 22, this testimony of the Apostle Paul as he's standing before his enemies who have just beat him up. He's giving his life story to them. So I invite you to turn there, Acts 22. Um, you can read a, uh, a similar account in Acts chapter 9. This is Paul talking about what happened. Um, and, um, and so we're, we're going to study that today. Now, many of the miracles that we've looked at in this series, did you know that many of them are not repeated today? The Red Sea parted one time, as far as we know. It's not parting regularly in our day. There was, in Elijah's day, there was fire that fell from heaven to, to demonstrate God's sovereignty, but fire is not falling regularly and repeatedly from heaven. 
even the uh, incarnation of Jesus, you know, that happened one time. The death of Jesus happened one time. The resurrection of Jesus, it happened one time in history. The benefits are ongoing for sure, but it won't be repeated again. Now, of all of the impossible miracles that God has done, there's one ongoing miracle that's happening today. And you know what? It's happening in our city. It's happening in our country. It's happening all over the world. And that miracle, that impossible work, is some that some of you have personally experienced this particular miracle. It's a miracle that all of us are called to pray for and look for and participate in. God still does the impossible, and the primary way we see it in our day is something that we call conversion. Conversion, which is a change of heart. Now, the word conversion carries some baggage. Some people think of it as like a heavy-handed religious control or coercion. We spoke a little bit about that last week. Now, here's a simple way to understand what conversion is. Conversion is when you turn from a small g God that you've constructed to fit your life, constructed to fit your heart, constructed to fit your desires, and turn toward the true God as he is revealed in Jesus Christ. And you orient your whole life around the living and true God, even if he's uncomfortably different from what you had expected or hoped. That's essentially what conversion is. Someone's true passion is money. They give everything they have to possess the finest things in life and to have a certain amount of zeros in their bank account. And then, but they worry about it. Once they get it, they worry about losing it all. And the stuff doesn't fill the emptiness inside. And their conversion happens when they turn to the true God and say, all this money that I spent years accumulated belongs to you and you are the Lord of it, and you direct it, and also fill the void inside that money can't fill. Another's true passion is romance. They dream about being swept off their feet one day, of the exhilarating rush of being loved, admired, and connected to that woman or man who allures them. As a result, they open the gate of their heart a little too wide, a little too often, And they come away more bruised and lonely than before. For this person, their conversion may happen when they turn towards the true bridegroom, Jesus Christ, who fills them to overflowing with the love of the Father. And that completely changes how they see and approach romance. Now, today's story is about a man whose small g God was an ideology, a religious ideology. And he demanded that people think like him, behave like him. And when they wouldn't, he exerted pressure and control, sometimes overtly, sometimes covertly. But he, he really, he moved into violence because people didn't believe like him and think like him. And he was a very unlikely candidate for conversion. People just wouldn't, would never believe that he would turn from that small G God of like a strong man. He believed in what he thought was God, which was this strongman God who would establish a strongman kingdom and do it in a strongman way. And like his life kind of looked like that. He was, he was just this terrible person who, who was, you know, righteously indignant. But he, he, that wasn't the true God. 
He was about to turn to the true God and would completely change his life. Why is conversion a miracle, my friends? So let's just ask ourselves this question. Would we willingly give up control over our life? Because the small g gods feel like control, don't they? Feels like this is the life that I want. This is the life that I've worked for. And who wants to give that up? Would we willingly part with the things that we are most attached to? I don't. Okay, so it's a miracle for me to be converted. But what if, listen, what if turning from the small g God meant hope, meant freedom, meant joy? What if it meant being right with God and whole with God and and in right relationship with neighbor? What if it meant, my friends, that we were no longer living a lie? What if it meant that we could know and love the true God, not the one we've constructed? If that were the case, would you want to be converted? Because God is ready to perform this miracle for you. And, and so I want you to hear a firsthand testimony of how it happened to Saul, otherwise known as Paul. I'll kind of refer to him with both names. And we're going to look at this in two ways. The first way is the clash of conversion. And that's when Saul encounters the true God. And there's always a little bit of a clash when it comes to conversion. When our construction of life hits the reality of who God really is. But secondly, we're going to look at the community of conversion when Saul encounters the church. Um, But the clash of conversion, the first part of Acts 22, as I mentioned before, Saul's a religious man. He thinks he's doing God's will. He's carrying papers that are authorizing him to harass and kill Christians. And this is what he said in Acts 22, verse 6. As I was traveling and approaching Damascus, about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. Now notice the clash. There's an intense light from heaven that flashed around Saul. Earlier in this series, we looked at Genesis 1, that there was an uncreated light of God illumining all of creation before even the sun was created. In Revelation 21, last week, we see God and the Lamb illuminating the new creation after the sun and the moon have ceased to exist. In John 1, Jesus is the light of the world who shines brightly into our dark world, overflowing with grace and truth. The light of God has a weight to it, and it knocks Paul to the ground. It knocks Saul to the ground. In verse 7, he says, I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So the weight of God, the clash of God, why is this necessary? And it happens in different ways for different people. But the reason that this clash feels like such a rude interruption is because the gods that we have constructed to make our life work are usually way too tame, usually way too safe and conveniently shaped to the love of our hearts. And so we have to come into line with reality. Here's a silly illustration. This week I I took my bike to work and I just assumed that it would be nice weather. It was like, it was nice out when I biked. And so, but what I realized, thankfully someone tipped me off, like it's going to rain soon. It's going to rain soon. And so I had to kind of adjust my whole life. I had to adjust my commuting plans to, to like escape the rain. Um, I haven't been so lucky in the past. I haven't always been tipped off. And sometimes I've been soaking wet with the reality of the Chicago weather that I was not prepared for. Because you know this, in Chicago, there's a difference between the forecast we want 
and the forecast that is. We wear shorts in the spring way before we should. You know, we, go, we gallivant about on our scooters and bikes, hoping it won't rain, but it rains. The weather exists. It's a reality that exists independent of our expectations. So the smart move is to adjust our reality around the weather. What's Saul discovering? He's discovering that God exists independent of his preconceived notions. So for Saul, conversion begins as a clash, as a lightning flash. And it was at this moment that Saul's whole world began to change. He asks, uh, or the Lord asks him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And verse eight, I answered, who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, the one you are persecuting. In addition to the light, there's a voice. This is the authentic, powerful voice of Jesus who asks Saul a penetrating question, why are you persecuting me? And with this one question, Jesus Christ names Saul's great peril, which is you thought you were serving God, but you were actually opposing him. You thought you were serving God, but you were actually opposing him, persecuting him. And this question also reveals the identity of Jesus that he wasn't the strong man God of Saul's imagination. He was a vulnerable God who became man, who was Jesus of Nazareth, who was incarnate, who lived um, on this earth, who was crucified on a Roman cross and is now alive and identifying so deeply with his suffering people that he would say, it's me that you're persecuting. Now, in the, in the days that followed, I wonder what Saul was thinking about. You know, he was blinded for three days. He didn't eat, he didn't drink. And I, I imagine that he was thinking about this encounter and thinking about this revelation of Jesus that I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he's rethinking everything that he had assumed about who God was. What a clash, what a reality check. I, I imagine that Saul, in fact, was like having to grieve deeply that he was actually living as an enemy of God who loved him and forgave him. And, and I think actually grieving is a really important part of the conversion process that after we have the clash of actually meeting the God who is, we have to grieve the years that we didn't know him. We have to grieve the years that we grieved his heart. That's a really important part of the conversion process. The blinding light of the risen Christ was like a, like a crater coming from another world, landing right in the center of the pond of Saul's soul, and it just splashed everywhere. It had to, the pond had to reorient itself around the crater. This is the real God. His glory comes with weight. And now Saul begins to orient his life around this real living God. And the Lord tells him, uh, uh, get up and go to Damascus, and there you will be told everything that you have been assigned to do. And he was led by the hand of those who were with him. And he went to Damascus. Um, and then, as we know, there was three days of blindness. And then you know what else? There was 14 years of preparation before he began his missionary journey. Even dramatic conversions like Saul's, and most are not as dramatic as this, are a process. Once you encounter God and realize that he's pursuing you, like the hound of heaven, you have to have time to consider his claims. 
You need space to reorient your whole life and, and uh, your intellect and priorities. And the important thing to know here is that Saul hasn't even crossed the line of faith yet. That conversion process has begun, but it's not yet complete. He has to take some baby steps of following Jesus. He, he goes the way that Jesus directs him. He learns about God's strength and weakness as he's blinded, and yet he's beginning to spiritually see. It's a process. Would you like to be converted? If God is more wonderful and powerful and glorious than anything you've ever imagined, would you want to meet him? Do you want his holy and life-giving power to fill your life, to fill you with overflowing? My friends, if he's more loving and forgiving than anyone you've ever met and anyone you've ever known, and he knows everything about you, would you want God to pursue you like the hound of heaven? Do you want him knocking on the door of your heart? If you found out, for instance, if that your current God is not the real God, would you want to know? Would you want to know that, it's, that, that the God you've constructed, the, you may not call it God, you probably don't call it God. The reality that means the most to you is not going to li- deliver on its promises. Would you want to know that in advance before you spend any more years following that God? What if that God was like sucking the life out of you? but you didn't know it until it was too late. Would you want to know now? Would you be willing to let the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the impossible, scatter the darkness from your life? Turn to him, my friends. Stop resisting him. Say yes to the hound of heaven. Invite him into your life. Invite him, let him invite you to take a next step to begin to follow him. Like Saul did. That's the clash of conversion. Then there's the community of conversion, and that's really important. Uh, when my wife was expecting our, our four children, um, we got to witness a team of midwives help with the birthing process. And they were, these midwives were amazing. We met different midwives over the years, but here's what the midwives did. They walked uh, with Laura and other mothers through the process in advance. They coached them and, it, uh, and encouraged them through the delivery They watched for signs of the baby's arrival, and then they were ready to gently help the child through the birth canal. If there were any medical issues, they could address them on the spot. But the midwives were in the room where it happened. They were in the room where the babies were born. Now listen, the people of God are like a team of midwives when people are ready to become Christians and enter the kingdom of God. Many people formed the conversion community for for Saul. There are many midwives. We can think of the, uh, Stephen, who was the first deacon of the church, who gave testimony to Jesus. And um, when he was being stoned, Saul was there holding the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen. Um, there was James and Peter who welcomed Saul into their fellowship two weeks after his conversion. And then there was Ananias, and I really appreciate Ananias's role. He was rightly afraid of Saul. Saul had a reputation for killing and persecuting Christians. But the Lord God came to Ananias in a vision and said, I've got someone that I want you to welcome into your fellowship. I want you to pray for him and welcome him in. And Ananias said, but he'll, he'll kill me. He's been killing Christians. What am I supposed to do? And the Lord said, I have something for him to do and I want you to confirm it. And so Ananias had to forgive his enemy. In order to be part of the conversion community uh, for, for Saul, Ananias had to say, well, I'm willing to forgive 
someone who's been harassing and killing my brothers and sisters. And also Ananias had to take a step of boldness. He had to, you know, move out of his comfort zone. He had to take a step that was a little bit, you know, probably scary for him, put his own life at risk, put his own safety at risk to welcome Saul into um, the kingdom of God. And he did it. Verse 12, someone named Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, who had a good reputation with all the Jews living there. Get this. He said, he came and stood by me, which is really amazing that he did that. And he said, brother Saul, regain your sight. And at that very hour, I looked up and, and I saw him. Do you see how he calls him brother? Do you see how he stands next to him, puts his hand on his shoulder? And then he also helps Saul understand the experience of Jesus three days prior when he says in verse 14, the God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth since you will be a witness for him to all people of what you have seen and heard. Can you hear Ananias helping Saul interpret the experience that he's had? This would be a lot for Saul to carry And Ananias is that brother who's standing right next to him going, here's what you've been through. Here's how God is moving in your life. Here's how you can respond to him. We all need that when we're going through a conversion process. We need the community. We need the midwives who are in the room where it happens. And then he welcomes Saul into the kingdom of God. Now, verse 16, why are you delaying? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And just to be in the room, to be, in the, to be right next to Brother Saul as he's getting baptized. You know, history is changing in this moment as Saul's getting baptized. Things would never be the same, but, it's, but Ananias is right there for it. Ananias is getting sprayed maybe from the water of Saul's baptism, watching a man who was the most unlikely convert in all the world confess the name of Jesus as Lord, and have his sins washed away. Uh, Some time ago, I got to know a a Rwandan pastor named John Ruchahana. And he had a role similar to Ananias in many people's lives. During the 1994 Rwandan genocide, uh, uh, Pastor John's uh, niece, who was like a daughter to him, he kind of adopted her. She was brutally, brutally attacked and, and murdered by Hutu Rwandans, his fellow Rwandans. And at the time, he was living in Uganda, and so uh, he was filled with rage and hate and vengeance for all of the Hutu Rwandans that not only killed his niece, but who who murdered hundreds of thousands of their fellow fellow citizens. And then, um, you know, the Hound of Heaven found John Rujahana and, and, like, asked him to forgive all of the Hutus and asked him not just to forgive, but to move back to Rwanda and begin to minister in the prisons uh, where all of the Hutus had been rounded up and imprisoned. And so um, against all odds, John Ruchahana went to these prisons. He started forgiving people. He started preaching the gospel. He, started bring, he, he even said, I want you to think about the moment of the massacre. And, and they started, these men, these prisoners started to weep. And he's like, I want you to see the face of someone that you the person that you killed. They started to weep really, really loudly. And he said, now it's time to confess your sins. And they did. And he forgave them. And also he was there for their conversion and he was there for their baptisms. And I asked him, I said, Bishop John, what was it like for you to see people who were your enemies 
walk into the kingdom of God and be forgiven by you and by God. And he's like, it's unlike anything else in the world. And, and this is a, just a little picture of the conversion community. Being, being right there, the most unlikely people that you would never, ever expect. Actually, God is called the hound of heaven. The God of the impossible is, is chasing them and calling them and drawing them. And he wants to animate us and he wants to move us to welcome them into the kingdom of God. Here's the best part. We don't have to do the miracle. God's doing the miracle. All we're doing is all the human stuff, all the little stuff, making a new friend, inviting them to come to our homes, inviting them into our city groups, inviting them into our community. And if we're doing it, inviting them to Alpha, um, which is a, a course that introduces people to Christianity over delicious food, making a pot of chili, asking a thoughtful question, hearing their story, offering a prayer, telling our story about how Jesus Christ has changed our life. And also, if the time comes, standing with them at their baptism. Holy Spirit does the rest. We just get to watch it happen. It's awesome. Now, this sermon series about the God of the impossible is, is coming to a close soon, and it's coming to a point, which is that will we look to him? Will we trust him? Will we venture on him? Will we, will we trust the one who can do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine? By God's grace, we could become a community of conversion. We really could. We're not there yet, but we could be there. Do you want that? Would you like to be that kind of a community? Being midwives, a team of midwives, seeing new births in the kingdom of God, new people, the most unlikely people becoming Christians. Begin to pray with me for it. It's a prayer God will answer. Um, but I, I need you to pray. I can't pray alone. Staff can't say, you know, clergy, we can't do this alone. We've got to have a whole team of people praying and looking and inviting. Do you want to be converted if you're here? Y you can. You can. You can cast off that small form-fitted God you've constructed because it's taking more than you're giving, my friends. You can turn to the living Christ. Let him call you by name. He will forgive your sin and heal your pain and, and make you his own. Would you like to become a conversion community? Would you like to see people converted? I want to end with a, a little testimony from missionaries we just sent out, Michael and Kayla Parker. I texted them last night. Hey, I mean, what's it like on the front lines? You're reaching out here. Here's a text from Kayla. You want to hear it? Okay. Kayla says this, we've learned it time and time again in the short eight weeks we've been working with college students. Don't say no for anyone. We have non-Christian students attending our social events, our Bible studies, and even the weekend retreat we just had. We have had students issue invitations, and we've done it ourselves, to people whose spiritual backgrounds are completely unknown to us, and they're coming. We had one student decide to follow Jesus for the first time just two weeks ago because someone was brave enough to invite him to a Christian retreat. I've gotten to share with a freshman girl about God's forgiveness. She's never heard of a gospel take on it before. And we've been studying the Bible with students who have only ever read a few chapters of it before, if at all. We just keep finding out that you never know who will say yes. And we're growing confident that this generation is spiritually awake and hungry. Isn't that amazing? Ananias found it out in his generation. Kayla and Michael are finding it out in their generation. Would you like to find it out too? 
Would you like to become a conversion community? I sure would. So let's pray for that now. The Lord be with you. We thank you, Lord, that you are the God of the impossible. And we pray, Lord, that if we haven't yet turned to you, that we would. We pray that even if, Lord, we've been maybe in church for a long time, but we, actually, actually, we haven't actually turned to the God that is celebrated here, we pray that we would do that today. We pray that we would begin to grieve all the years that we haven't looked to you. We pray, Lord, that you would make us new creation as you encounter us with your light. Pursue us, Lord, as the hound of heaven. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us a conversion community, that we would look to the God of the impossible who once parted waters and now changes hearts. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.